Well, good morning, church, and welcome, visitors. It is, it is good to gather with you this morning again to worship our sovereign God. In case I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Kelton. I also have the, the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. If you would, please join me in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 37. If you're reading along in one of the the Bibles provided for you in the pew, you can find that uh, chapter on page 31. Page 31, Genesis 37, we're going to be in verses 2 through 36. The rejected brother and the sovereign God. Genesis 37, 2 through 36. The rejected brother and the sovereign God. Where is God when Christians are hated and attacked? Is is God absent in our, our suffering? We hear stories of targeted persecution from around the globe day after day. But it doesn't have to be religious persecution. Christians, just like our neighbors, are the victims of, of theft, of violence, of murder. And, and then, of course, there is all kinds of, of natural evil. Not the, the malice of men, but the, the suffering and death that are, are too common in our world. The stories we all have of disaster and disease. So I ask again, where is God in our suffering? Why does God allow evil things to happen to his people? Why doesn't he protect us if he is all-powerful and good? Or is it that he isn't all-powerful and can't? Or that he isn't good but, but indifferent to evil? These are not just the questions of the ivory tower. They are the questions that have the power to shape every day of our lives. And these are the very questions that shaped the everyday lives of Jacob's sons. We begin this morning in Genesis chapter 37, the final section of Genesis. What is considered to be among the best narratives, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature, and it is true. It is the story of hate, jealousy, attempted murder, deception, slavery, imprisonment, sexual immorality, famine, theft, poverty, and more. It is a a veritable smorgasbord of evil. And you can check on this later. Though God's name shows up time and time again in these chapters, God speaks only once in these final 14 chapters of Genesis to Jacob. He communicates by dreams, but even those dreams have no speech in them, just some wild scenes. Isn't this exactly when we need to hear from God the most? Is God absent in the midst of of so much evil? Does God's silence in the midst of the evil you suffer mean he is absent? Can we as Christians have confidence that God is present with us and still ruling and reigning, accomplishing his purposes? That he is both all-powerful and good. We begin our journey with the sons of Jacob in Genesis 37 today. Before we read, I will lead us in a prayer of illumination for God to make his word clear to us. So please, before we read, pray with me for our hearing and for the proclamation of God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So, Father, in this this origami of Joseph's life, we pray that you would unfold it before us, that we would see your divine providence, your guiding and protecting, your power and goodness, even in the midst of great evil. And, Father, we pray that that would give us the same confidence 
That just as you directed the evil toward your ends in Joseph's life, so did you in Jesus' life to accomplish our salvation, the greatest good that has ever happened. And so will you in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Read with me Genesis 37, starting in verse 2. This is God's Word. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flocks with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, so he said to him, Go, now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hands be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and and I, where shall I go? (coughs) Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. 
Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. Well, what is the central message of this passage for us today? I think I might put it like this. Even when hated, attacked, and forgotten, God is at the center working His sovereign will. Even when hated, attacked, and forgotten, God is at the center working His sovereign will. Joseph in this chapter has suffered great evil. The, The smorgasbord of evil is already on display with family rivalries, foolish favoritism, murderous plots, and more. Where is God? Even though God's name is is nowhere mentioned in this chapter, we rejoice to say that God's purpose prevails even over this evil. Even when hated, attacked, and forgotten, God is at the center working His sovereign will. We're going to have three points to organize this passage this morning. Three points. First, God's purposes may be hidden. That in verses 2 through 11. Second, God's purposes can not be hindered. God's purposes cannot be hindered in 12 through 30. And finally, God's purposes will ripen fast. God's purposes will ripen fast in the final verses, 31 through 36. God's purposes may be hidden. God's purposes cannot be hindered. God's purposes will ripen fast. So we'll start back at verse 2, our first point, God's purposes may be hidden. Our story begins, and we have the privilege of hindsight. Even if you've, you've never heard this story in its entirety, you can assume that Moses is recording us for us in the Bible because God is at work. But here at the start, it seems his purpose is hidden. If you weren't with us last week, we're starting at verse 2, because verse 1 is actually the conclusion of what we studied last week, the generations of Esau. So you can look down at your Bibles, verse 2, another, these are the generations of phrase. And as we've said every time we've come to them, this is the dividing line in the book of Genesis. So this is the tenth and final generation of list in the book of Genesis. The generation with Isaac as the the patriarch is past. History is marching on to the generation of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. And Moses dealt with the the line of of Esau first, last week, because it is through this second line, the line of Jacob, that God's promises are going to continue. You'll remember that God has promised from the very beginning that through the offspring of Eve, one of Eve's descendants, God's promised one would come. That promise was clarified through Abraham. Now we look forward to to one to come that will bring blessings for all nations. Well, there are no more. These are the generations of markers. This is the, the last patriarch here in Jacob. The family will next become a nation, the nation of Israel. But we won't get a list of Israel's burgeoning nation until the end of chapter 46. Now there is much more to say about these sons of Jacob. And it begins here with his 11th son, Joseph. Why Joseph? Well, in part because he's first in his father's heart. But we need some setting first. That's what the rest of verses 2 through 4 give us. The the necessary details before the action really starts in verse 5. So the the purpose of these verses here in verses 2 through 4 is to show us why Joseph is hated by his brothers. 
Our protagonist, Joseph, it says there in verse 2, is 17 years old. He's been a shepherd with his brothers, the four sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. But in particular, he seems to be a snitch, a tattletale. It says there that he brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Based on how that, that word, bad report, is used elsewhere in the Bible, it might be that his bad report is, is false or exaggerated. But even if it is true, this, this story is, is not making him friends with his brothers. It implies his attachment and allegiance to his father against his brothers. And for that, he is hated. Not only is he a tattletale, but he is also spoiled. In verse 3, Joseph is the object of his father's special love. It's helpful to remember here some of what we've already studied in the book of Genesis. Joseph is the firstborn of the wife that Jacob loved most. So yes, he is the 11th son, but he is the firstborn of Rachel. Rachel, who at this point is deceased, was the one that Jacob labored for, you'll remember, seven years that seemed to be only a few days because of the love he had for her. But again, you'll remember at the last moment, Laban switched out Rachel for his sister, or her sister Leah, right? And then both Leah and Rachel, in their competition to earn their husband's love, gave their servants to Jacob as wives Tons of dysfunction in this family. So even though Joseph is among the youngest among his brothers, he is the firstborn of Joseph's long barren, or sorry, Jacob's long barren, but but favorite wife. And he is therefore the favorite child. His status as favorite child is very evident here with a unique and conspicuous gift. This Robe of many colors, a grand robe. The only other time this expression describing this this unique robe, it it shows up when describing a a garment of one of King David's daughters, a a princess. So it's it's a royal robe. Well, as you can guess, his brothers don't appreciate this special treatment. You see it there in verse 4. Because of the father's special love for Joseph, they hate Joseph. They couldn't even greet him peacefully. They despised him so much. Everywhere you look in this family, there is dysfunction. Moses is describing the fruits of sinful partiality here, of an unjust bias of one person Rachel first, and now Joseph, over another. Maybe, maybe you've been wounded by, by favoritism in the home, in the workplace, even in the church, passed over or ignored. Or maybe you've been guilty of it. We need to pause here and just say that this should not be true of the church. Our God is... Impartial. He so, shows no partiality to the rich or the poor, not to the great or the small. We, of course, all have natural preferences, people we naturally like more, we get along with more easily. But consider how your intentional efforts to, to love, even when you find it hard or unnatural, can bring blessing. Blessing in your family, in your workplace, in the church. So let this be your, your regularly scheduled pastoral reminder that the church should not be marked by cliques, by an inner and outer circle, by favoritism among us. It takes work, brothers and sisters. But, but aim to love, love those among us who, who you might normally never speak to were it not for our unity in Christ, as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Your efforts to love those not like you can remove kindling from the fire and promote unity. It's in fact the opposite 
of what happens in this powder keg of a family. Verse 5, a match is thrown. Joseph dreams a dream. I want you to notice, Joseph is passive in this. This isn't one of those lucid dreams you hear about, right? Where he's able to control the events consciously of his dream. No, no, no. He noticed how the report of the dream is framed for us, both before and after. In verses 5 and 8, because of this dream, his brothers hated him even more. Hated to hated more. There were already signs of his superiority to his brothers. And this dream just makes it worse. In this dream, in in verse 6, he and his 11 brothers are out in the fields binding sheaves. They're harvesting and, and gathering grain, tying them together into bundles. But these sheaves come alive. His stands up tall and, and all the others circle around it and bow down to his. Well, the implications are clear as he tells this to his brothers. As if the royal robe weren't enough. Now you're dreaming that you will reign and rule over us? We have to conclude that that Joseph is either naive in his youth or mischievous. His his brothers already hate him. Telling telling them this kind of dream won't make things any better. But not only does he tell them, he does it twice. In verse 9, on a separate occasion... He has a second dream. Here, instead of out in the fields, it's, it's all the celestial bodies bowing down to him. Sun, moon, and, and eleven stars. And now Jacob, Joseph's father, gets involved. The implication is still clear. Not only does it mean the eleven brothers, but now father and, and mother, sun and moon, will bow down to Joseph. And we see there in verse 11... The brother's hatred escalated to more hatred is now jealousy. They are envious of his position in the family and what his dreams mean for the future. But notice in verse 11, his father Jacob kept the saying in mind. Kept the saying in mind. He, he himself, Jacob, has dreamed dreams and, and knows what they can mean. Way back in the story when when Jacob himself was fleeing from his brother that hated him, Esau, he had a dream, a vision of a, a staircase from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending. God showing him that he would protect him and be with him as he left the promised land. So Jacob considers maybe God is with Joseph too. Maybe Maybe there's something special about Joseph. Church, where did Joseph's dream come from? You can answer. God. Today, God speaks to his people not by dreams, but by his word. If you want to hear God's will for your life, read the Bible out loud. But long before the Bible, in the days of the patriarchs, it was common for God to speak to them by dreams. It's how he'd done so with Abraham, even the pagan king Abimelech, just as he now has with Joseph and will with the the pagan king Pharaoh. God will later say in Numbers 12, 6, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him In a dream. In other words, it is God who throws the match into the powder keg of Jacob's dysfunctional family. Everything that follows from this point on is set into motion by this dream coming from God, by God's purpose. But at this point, that purpose is hidden. Jacob only has the wisdom to to keep it in mind. To the rest of them, there are no indications yet what this dream may mean. And it will be years and years before the meaning of the dream is clear, only in hindsight. For now, 
They seem to be an idle fantasy, the the boasts of the self-important. Friends, even when it is not plain, God's purpose is at work. Even when it is not plain, God's purpose is at work. The Bible teacher John Piper puts it this way, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, And you may be aware of three of them. God's sovereign direction of our lives and of all history is most often hidden. He doesn't tell us the end from the beginning. In fact, when you consider it, Joseph and his family couldn't even tell you this was the beginning. The beginning of of what? This story only makes sense once it's all done. And that is true of your life too, saint. You might try to interpret your circumstances. What is God doing? It's the question we all ask when we suffer evil. What is God up to? What is his purpose? Is he even here? But it is as we sang earlier. God is is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. It might not be until the next age, when all is said and done, when the books of history are closed, that we will see. The the image that comes to mind for me, for for both the story of Joseph here in Genesis 37 and for for our lives, is the the weaving of a tapestry. You've probably seen one, right? A, A thick fabric woven or embroidered that has intricate designs or, or, or artwork hung on, on walls for all of us to enjoy. And, and from the hand of a skilled weaver with a clear design in mind, they are they're gorgeous. But when they're in progress, from the backside, they're a mess. They look like a jumble of, of knots and loose ends. It isn't until the tapestry is finished and flipped that we see the design, the purpose, the beauty. Here in Genesis 37, the the tapestry of Jacob's family is just getting started. But the mind of God has a clear design, and, and his invisible hand is skillfully weaving it together. And this this even includes the dark threads of this chapter of, of partiality, of hatred, of jealousy. Yes, God means even in our sin. And the sin of others against us to achieve the design that he has planned before our days. So saints, we can be patient even when hated, attacked, and forgotten. God is at the center. A master craftsman working his sovereign will. God's purpose may be hidden to us, but it will become plain. And in the meantime, we can be certain that it will be accomplished. That's what we see clearly, very clearly in our next session. And our our second point, God's purpose cannot be hindered. In verses 12 through 30, God's purpose cannot be hindered. We have the the plan set in motion by the dreams in verses 5 and following. And now we will see that God's plan cannot cannot be hindered. You know, Christians can certainly use the words lucky and coincidence, but we know better, right? Nothing in our lives is the product of of random happenstance, of simple luck. God, as sovereign of creation, governs all things that happen according to his plan, including all the details of our next scene. It starts in verse 12 with, his brothers with Jacob's flocks near Shechem. That's about 40 miles north of where they're at in the valley of Hebron. So in verse 14, the mission is for Joseph to go check in on his other brothers. But as we go, consider how many factors had to go exactly right for this story to end up how it does. 
You know, we, we remember that, that Jacob has reason to be worried for his sons near Shechem. Do you remember what happened last at Shechem? That's where Simeon and Levi went and killed all the males for abusing their sister Dinah. So last we heard, Jacob had complained that he was now odious to the inhabitants of Shechem. They're not friends with Jacob's sons. So right from the start, we consider what if, what if that little detail all the way back from Genesis 34 had gone differently? It all started when Dinah went out to see the women of the land and then a wicked person happened to see her. But she had. And after that sequence of events, Jacob now has reason to send Joseph to check on their welfare. Well, in verse 15, Joseph doesn't find his brothers near Shechem. Could it be the worst? Could something terrible have happened to them? But it just so happens, as he is wandering in a field, no, not in a village, not near a well, just in a field, a man happens to find him. Like really, what are the chances all the way out here? And it just so happens that that man, among all men, had overheard his brothers saying among themselves where they were headed next. No, they didn't go out, find this man, inform him, leaving a message behind in case anybody came looking for them. No, he just happened, he says, to have overheard it. If any other man had found Joseph wandering, he couldn't have helped. But... This man did find him, the one who had overheard. So Joseph, in verse 17, finds his brothers farther north in Dothan. But more coincidence we see. They see him coming from afar in verse 18. And how do you think they know it's him and not someone else? Might it be the recognizable robe that his father gave him? What if he had approached a different way, out of sight until too close for them to confer among themselves and hatch a scheme? What if he had approached in the cover of night, but it just so happens? You can see the source of their animosity in verse 20, where they see, wonder what will become of his dreams. They call him a, a dreamer. In his dreams given by God that animate their murderous plots. I think we have to pause here and, and notice, saints, God is not a tempter. He himself tempts no one. It is the sinful desires of these brothers, their jealousy, that move them to plot evil. But again, more so-called coincidence... Their brother Reuben speaks up. We have no reason to think that Reuben doesn't hate Joseph. Every verse so far in the narrative has assigned hatred and jealousy to all the brothers. But Reuben has reason to have ulterior motives. Long before he fell out of favor with his family by sinning against his father. And by it, he lost his birthright as the the firstborn. So, in his hidden plot to save and rescue Joseph, it is more selfish motive to regain favor with his father. Yes, if he can rescue Joseph, his father's favorite, it can only mean good things for Reuben. But God governs even Reuben's selfish motives because his plans go unhindered. So when Joseph approaches, they attack and strip him. But do not kill him. They throw him into a pit in verse 24. This pit would be a, a carved cistern used to store water. But it just so happens that this cistern is empty. So that Joseph's life is, is preserved. He does not drown. And so in verse 25, his brothers sit down and eat, and it just so happens that at that very moment, 
A caravan of traders passed by. You know, if they had still been down by Shechem, they would have been too far from the, the trade route. But God is directing all things because his plans go unhindered. He means for them to be here now as the caravan he sends passes by. But it's not just that they're there. It just so happens that one of the brothers, Judah, connects the dots. We can profit. Let's sell our brother. It's a win-win. We get money and we're not guilty of shedding his blood. And it just so happens that these traders are heading away from Gilead, not to. They are headed to Egypt. Oh, and, and by the way, Reuben must have been away tending to the flocks. He might have stepped in and prevented this somehow. Because we see in verse 29, he returns and finds that they have already sold Joseph. So, in verse 31, the story turns back to dealing with their father, now that Joseph is long gone. But, but consider that with me, brothers and sisters. If any of these details had gone slightly different, where might Joseph have ended up? Maybe he'd still be safe back with his father. No need to check on his brothers if there was no threat in Shechem. Maybe he'd still be lost in the hills looking for his brothers if that man hadn't found him. Maybe he'd be with his brothers, but appearing before they could hatch a plan. Or maybe, in fact, dead, drowned, or murdered. Or sold to different merchants heading anywhere but Egypt. It's something like throwing a ping-pong ball down a tiled hallway, trying to get it to bounce ten times and hit a target no bigger than that ping-pong ball on the opposite wall. You know, every little imperfection of the ball, every angle of the tile, every bit of air resistance will make every single throw completely different. But it just so happens... In the divine power of God, his throw bounces exactly where it needs to every time so that it hits the target right in the center. Joseph, down to Egypt. And that's just a day in the life of Joseph. He manages billions of ping pong balls bouncing down millions of hallways to hit the same target. What we are seeing here, brothers and sisters, even though God's name is nowhere mentioned, is His providence. It is His invisible hand guiding all of history. We confessed our belief in this earlier in our service. That God is not just the ruler of all creation, but that He directs all events and people towards His appointed end. We confess there that he perpetually upholds all events. At every bounce, it is God's design that he upholds. And this, even over the sinful choices of free people. You'll notice here that God does not step in and force the brothers to plan murder against their will, to selfishly scheme a rescue, or suggest a sale. Each brother does exactly whatever they desire, whatever is natural to them. But their desires accomplish what God's hand had predestined to take place. How is this possible? It is safe to say, I don't know. I quote John Piper again. When it comes to how this works, I do not know. How do two acts of willing, one human and sinful, the other divine and righteous, work together to bring about the sinful deed so that the brothers are guilty and God is sinless? I do not know. And no one knows such things except God. We simply do not know, but it is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Scripture. 
This is what we read earlier in our service from Acts 4. Much like Joseph, the beloved son Jesus was sent by the Father to those who hated and betrayed him. He too, Jesus, was sold for silver to Gentiles and it was all sinful. But Acts 4 says they did what God in his providence ordained. Let me read those verses again for you from Acts 4. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, it is the clear testimony of Scripture that salvation from sin is only possible because God can accomplish His plan through sinners. This is what God is doing through Joseph. God has a righteous plan to send him to Egypt to bring salvation to all people. And how did he accomplish that? Through the sinful acts of his brothers to get him there. And that is what he did with Jesus. Jesus, God's righteous plan to send him to the cross to bring salvation to all people. And how did he do that? Through the sinful acts of both Jews and Gentiles to get him to the cross. God's design in the life of Joseph is prefiguring the life of the coming Savior. Joseph here is a type of the Savior who is to come. God's providence gives us certainty that He has the power to save. He didn't just send Jesus and hope that it would all work out in the end. No, it was exactly what His hand and plan had predestined to take place. Acts 4 says, Saints, God worked the greatest good ever. The death of Jesus for sinners through the greatest evil ever. The death, the murder of the sinless Jesus Christ. You can be saved from your sin because God overrules sinful plans to destroy Christ. You can be saved from sin and eternal death by trusting in His death for you. On the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for your sins and three days later rose from the dead so that you can have eternal life in His resurrection life. So I ask again, where is God in the midst of evil? He is ruling and reigning. He is directing and governing. He has planned to bend all evil toward His appointed end. And we know that, that His plan is for our good and His glory. This we read of in Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things, Romans eight twenty eight says. Even when you are hated and attacked. Even when you are passed over and ignored. Even when a truck slams into you. Even when disease and pain afflict you. In all things, God is at the center working His sovereign will. Our God is both all-powerful and good. The greatness of our God is unsearchable. Able to both be, be completely set apart from sin, but also order all things so that even, even sinful acts do not hinder His purposes. I cannot tell you the why for now. The tapestry is still hidden, but I can tell you He, he is. We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to be careful. You do not yet share this assurance. This promise that God works evil for good is for those who, who love God. It is for His children. 
That might feel like a, a mean thing to say. I don't like saying it. But what I don't like even more is for you to be misled. So allow me to be direct. God is clear that His sovereign rule works for the good only for His children. You know, things may or may not go well for you in this life, but Christ is the only shelter from the wrath that is to come. In fact, it may be the opposite, that that all the good that God works in your life will only serve as evidence against you at judgment. We all would urge you to flee from the wrath that is to come. The only place to flee is in Christ by faith. And in Christ, all of us can share the confidence that that God will work all things for our good, even when we can't see how. But one day it will be clear. That's what we see in our last verses and our third point. God's purposes will ripen fast. In verses 31 through 36. God's purposes will ripen fast. I borrow that language from the the hymn we sang earlier, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And again, we, we sang, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The bud, for now, for Jacob, is quite bitter. In verses 31 and, and following, he gets a taste of his own Bitter medicine. Do you remember when Jacob deceived his father to steal a blessing also with a slaughtered goat and his brother's robe? I don't think this is coincidence either. This isn't just karma. What goes around comes around. Your fate is not decided by an impersonal force of cause and effect as Jacob did, so now he receives. No, Your fate is ruled by a personal God, a God of justice and of mercy. Even if Jacob didn't have the wherewithal to realize it, the God of providence gives us this correspondence to see the bitter fruits of sin, the deceiver deceived. In verse 32, the brothers don't even have to suggest what happened to Joseph They just dip the cloak in the goat's blood and and give it to their father, asking him to identify it. He comes to the conclusion on his own. And in, in verse 34, Jacob refused to be comforted by any of his sons or daughters. He plans on mourning Joseph's death until he dies too. His favorite son, lost. Especially if Jacob thought that Joseph's dream meant that that he was someone special, he might be thinking that God's plans are dead. It may be something like what the disciples felt when Jesus died and was buried. Hopeless. God's plans cut short. The disciples too refused to be comforted, slow of heart to believe in the face of death. But if God's plans require it, he can bring people back from the dead. Jacob will receive Joseph back from the dead, so to speak. And God rose Jesus from the grave so that even in the face of our greatest enemy, death, we can have hope. God's plans will not be hindered even by death. Joseph, at the end of our story, was in fact placed by God's providence exactly where he needed to be, poised for what was next. God was working his good purpose to save his people. There were bright gold threads in their tapestry ahead, even when now is all is black. You might recall, God had said many, many years earlier, in Genesis 15, 13, To their great-grandfather Abram, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
Even to Abram, it had always been God's plan that his people would be sojourners in a foreign land, but no one knows where yet. His purposes may be hidden, but they will be unhindered and will ripen fast. He is setting up his people here in Genesis 37 to sojourn in a land that is not theirs. So even when attacked, hated, and forgotten, God is at the center working His sovereign will. For us, it will likely not be until heaven that we see what what God had purposed in our pain. Remember, God is is always doing 10,000 things in our life and we might be aware of three of them. But one day, all 10,000 things will be done. And that is the hope that we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. A meal for Christians to remember that that our future and final good is secured by Jesus' body and blood broken for us. We eat anticipating that day when Jesus returns, when we will eat the, the heavenly feast with Him, where all evil and suffering will be done, having accomplished God's good purposes. Where is God When Christians are hated and attacked? Is God absent in our suffering? Even when hidden, hidden, God is working His perfect will to fulfill all His sovereign plans. The tapestry of our lives will be complete one day and on display to show to all the beauty of His glory and power forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you that you are at work. Even when your purposes are hidden, we can be certain that your will will be accomplished. Lord, we know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So Father, we look to the day when we will see your work in our lives accomplished. Lord, that all the the evil that we suffer today will have accomplished your perfect plan for us. So Lord, we pray that as we eat this meal, as we remember that you are Lord of all history, bringing it to a close, that we would set our hope on that day when evil and suffering will be no more, that we will eat with our Savior Christ in perfect harmony with him forever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.